The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. California's farmers are still assessing the damage from this year's major natural disasters here. The winter and spring flooding, as well as the recent wildfires in California's premier wine country. We have updates. If you work at a farmer's market, you're familiar with the lack of knowledge on the part of many of your customers about how your crops are grown, as well as misconceptions about the science and realities behind what you do for a living. We talk with a farm communications expert who will offer tips for bridging the gaps between farmers and consumers. And as you might imagine, with Thanksgiving approaching, we have lots of turkey talk on this week's show. And for shoppers, turkey prices right now are very appealing. And we'll tell you why. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. The Associated Press is reporting that the Wine Institute says that the fires in Napa, Sonoma, Mendocino counties had only a minimal effect on the area's wineries. Of the 1,200 wineries in Sonoma, Napa, and Mendocino, about 10 were destroyed or heavily damaged. 90% of this year's harvest was already completed. Most vineyards were spared due to their high moisture content, and some even helped save surrounding structures by acting as fire breaks. But many operators are now grappling with other long-term effects from the fires that killed 43 people and wiped out 8,900 buildings, making up for the losses from being closed at what is normally their busiest time of the year, assessing the impact of the smoke as well as other environmental damage on this year's vintage, and persuading tourists to return after weeks of news coverage of the fire fire's devastation. By the way, if you're wondering what smoke-tainted wines taste like, winemaker Chris Carpenter told the Associated Press that it's not very pleasant. It's like a bacon-flavored wine. But then again, you might like that. U.S. growers of wheat, soybeans, cotton, and corn all are seeing their crops exports increasing significantly in this past 2017 fiscal year, going up from 6% on up to 70. One big item missing from that list? Rice. U.S. rice exports dropped 3%, and it doesn't look good for this year. Agriculture Department Outlook Board Chairman Seth Meyer says, of course, one reason is a 20% smaller crop this year. There's not as much product to sell, but there's more to it than that. What we've seen is we're not very competitive outside the Western Hemisphere, and within the Western Hemisphere, we've seen some increase in competition from South America. And that's what's giving us some challenging headwinds for our export campaign for this year. And so USDA has just lowered its rice export forecast another 2 million hundredweight, which could take exports down by almost 13 million or about 11 percent. But because U.S. rice production's down so much, growers could still see higher prices than last season. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Thousands of acres of California's walnut orchards located in the Sacramento and northern San Joaquin Valley were affected by floodwaters last winter and spring. But there's a lot of considerable uncertainty about the tree's long-term viability. UC Cooperative Extension farm advisors have been scouting the orchards that have been waterlogged in Sutter, Yuba, Calusa, and Butte counties over the last seven months in order to assess tree health as well as to assist growers with their recovery efforts. The Western Farm Press reports that the advisors have examined tree root status, soil conditions, shoot growth, and overall tree vigor of the surviving trees in order to make decisions about either tree removal or strategies to help the trees recover. And what they're finding? varying degrees of recovery. Some trees are trying to recover, but many are not going to make it. 
And not knowing that long-term outlook for an orchard has been an issue as growers cannot receive federal assistance in a tree replacement program until there is 18% mortality per block. The California Walnut Commission estimates bearing California walnut acreage at about 320,000 acres. Julie Jensen has a lot on her plate as Agricultural Commissioner for Sacramento County. One of those jobs is stopping agricultural pests before they reach Sacramento County farmland. And she told the Sacramento County Board of Supervisors recently there is a pretty good method for helping to thwart the arrival of those pests. Instead of having mom and dad back home send in food to some homesick residents, and that food may contain some bad critters, more and more exotic vegetables are showing up at farmers' markets, which may be a good way to thwart the arrival of those pests. As we were saying, people can't find some of the things that, if they come from other countries, they can't find some of the vegetables that they need to create, some of the dishes that they enjoy. Well, actually, some of the farmers' markets are a good place to get those. You can't find them in the normal grocery store quite often, um, but the farmers' markets is actually a pretty good source for some of those uh, materials and certainly a much better source than having mom or dad back home send them to you. We would appreciate you going to the farmer's market rather than sending them through the mail. A little bit later in the KSDE Farm Hour, we talk with a communications expert who has some tips for those who work at farmer's markets, how to communicate with their customers about how they grow and what they grow. Here's this week's California Crop Report. Early plantings of small grains had germinated. They're showing good emergence, and growers continue to prep more fields for fall planting of wheat, barley, and oats. Alfalfa for hay production is finishing up with the last cuts of the season as growers windrowed, baled, and stacked the hay. The fields received herbicide treatments. Corn, milo, and sorghum continue to be harvested for green chop. Silage corn grew well, and harvesting is ongoing. Rice harvest is nearing completion. Cotton fields were defoliated. Harvesting was in full swing. Black-eyed beans are being harvested and processed. Most summer crops have been harvested, and fields are being prepared for winter planting. The apple harvest is winding down. Pruning has started in some stone fruit orchards. Some old orchards were being removed and prepared for replanting. Wine grape harvest is almost complete. Thompson seedless grapes are being rolled and picked up for raisins. Table grape harvest is winding down for the season. Quince, pears, pomegranates, kiwifruit, and persimmons were harvested. Olive groves were pruned. Early navel orange harvest is underway. Lemon, grapefruit, and pomelos were being harvested. And the mandarin harvest has begun. Almond harvest is complete. Orchard pruning and planting of new orchards is ongoing. Walnut and pistachio harvest is wrapping up. Harvested nut orchards are being irrigated. Harvest continues for green beans, cucumbers, daikon, eggplant, yellow bell peppers, and tomatoes. Processing tomato harvest is complete, and the harvested fields are being cultivated. Melon harvest is near completion. Garlic harvest was complete. New garlic crops are being planted. New fresh market onions are being treated for worms. The organic cantaloupe harvest has ended. Organic broccoli, celery, and spinach fields are growing nicely. Head, leaf, and romaine lettuce for the fall season are growing nicely, with many fields starting to be harvested. Non-irrigated and foothill rangeland forage is primarily in poor to very poor condition. Supplemental feeding of cattle is ongoing. Cattle were being moved down from higher elevation ranges. Sheep are grazing on harvested alfalfa and grain fields. Some bees were moved to Fresno County to overwinter. Local bees were provided with supplemental feed. 
take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. Turkeys, that means a lot of income for Sacramento County's poultry producers. Poultry, including turkeys and chickens, is the fourth most productive commodity on Sacramento County farms. 2016 production brought in over $36 million. Statewide, turkey production alone was worth $274 million, making California the seventh largest source of turkeys in the United States. According to the University of Illinois, Americans consumed 16 pounds of turkey on average in 2012. Another interesting thing is that 88% of people in the United States eat turkey as their main meal on Thanksgiving. This holiday is also the time when most turkeys are consumed in American households. On average, 50 million turkeys are eaten on Thanksgiving, with substantial numbers being consumed on Christmas and Easter. By the way, turkey is a bargain this year for consumers. With more on that, here's the USDA's Gary Crawford. Well, it's that time again. When many of us are out shopping, getting stuff so we can stuff ourselves for Thanksgiving. Top of the list, that turkey. Oh, don't that turkey look divine? Yeah. Well, promenade it down the line. Ah, uh, and the headline this year... Lots of turkey and lower prices. Agriculture Department Livestock Analyst Shale Shagum, you may remember back in 2015, a big bird flu outbreak decimated the turkey flocks. Production went down, down, down. Prices up, up, up. Took a while for turkey production to rebound, but it has a lot. And in fact, this fall, the supply of frozen hen turkeys is up 22% from last year. So production has more than recovered, but... It would seem to some extent that the demand has not fully recovered. Sending the prices at grocery stores pay for turkeys down. Frozen whole turkeys were averaging about 83 cents a pound, which is about 29% below a year ago. Wow, and if stores pass that savings on to us... That will lower the cost of an entire Thanksgiving dinner. So let's find out about that. Each year we ask Ag Department economist Anne-Marie Coons to go through some of the main items, come up with a cost number for a meal for four. And the result... For the second year in a row, we'll see the total cost for a family of four lower than the previous year. Wow, at least for a meal of turkey, sweet potatoes, green beans, cranberries, and milk and dairy products. These prices based on this past week's advertised prices collected nationwide by the Ag Department's marketing service. So, let's start with the honored guest at most Thanksgiving affairs, the turkey... Here I am again! Yeah, oh, Yes, he is. A 20% cheaper life of the party because this November, average supermarket price... 83 cents per pound. It was a dollar four last year, so total average price for a 16-pound turkey... Thirteen twenty-eight. That's three dollars and thirty-six cents less than last year. Next, hot potato, hot potato. Well, actually, it should be sweet potato, sweet potato. Per pound, do those currently cost on average a dollar and ten cents? This time last year, they were eighty-eight cents per pound. Oh, twenty-two cents more a pound than last year. Next, green beans. This week, they cost on average a dollar and eighty-nine cents compared to last year, a dollar and seventy cents. Nineteen cents more per pound this year. Next on the Hit Parade, a 12-ounce bag will run us $2.08. Oh, a whole penny more than last year. Uh, what else? What do we got next? Got milk? Oh, yeah, milk. Those prices are up 29% from last year. A gallon of milk, and this is for all fat contents, on average will cost you $2.79 this month compared to $2.16 last year. So... If you add up a 16-pound turkey, three pounds of sweet potatoes, a pound of green beans, a pound of cranberries, a gallon of milk, this year's total cost... 
$23.34. That's $1.87 less than last Thanksgiving. All of it from the lower price of uh, you-know-who. Yeah. That's you. Every party, yeah. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Ha. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey takes a look at the Thanksgiving weather outlook across the country. This covers the time period from November 21st through the 27th, with Thanksgiving nestled right in the midst of that time period. We are expecting below normal temperatures east of the Mississippi River, but mild conditions above normal temperatures expected all the way from the Pacific coast to the plains. Along with that ridge trough pattern, ridge in the west, trough in the east, we expect mostly dry weather across a broad area of the country. In fact, you're looking for wet conditions from the 21st through the 27th, you will have to head to the northwest. And right in the midst of that period, we do expect some rain and snow along the Atlantic seaboard. So that is something to watch even in the face of a expectation for below normal precipitation. A little closer to home, the seven-day forecast for Monday through Sunday includes a chance of drizzle on Wednesday, but other than that, mild conditions will prevail with highs near 60, overnight lows in the 40s all the way through Thanksgiving weekend. And now, my name is Alfred Hitchcock. The famous suspense director talks about our Thanksgiving meal traditions. Turkey is traditionally our guest of honor at Thanksgiving. Oh, yes, it is. And soon, many of us are going to be out buying the big bird for the big meal. But to feed everybody a decent amount, how big a turkey should we buy? About a pound per person. That will allow some second helpings, according to Marianne Gravely. She runs the Agriculture Department's Meat and Poultry Hotline, the number of which we'll give you in a minute. She says that one pound per person rule is good for a 12, 15-pound turkey. But when you get to the the really large turkeys, like a 20-pound turkey, they actually have a greater yield. So you would actually be able to feed more than 20 people people with the larger turkey. Ah, but keep in mind the time it's going to take to thaw that turkey in the recommended way, which is in the refrigerator. A day for every five pounds. So you buy that 20 pounder, say the Saturday before Thanksgiving, it should be thawed then by Wednesday, ready to cook on the big day. Now, do you want to know how to cook that big turkey in only one hour? You can cook a turkey in an hour if you set it on fire. <laughs> but don't do that. And as far as real cooking times for meal planning purposes, Marianne says roughly it takes about 20 minutes a pound at 320 25 degrees. So for a 12-pounder, it'll take about three hours if it's thawed. But that 20 minutes a pound is just a rough guideline. So we recommend using a food thermometer to tell you when your turkey is done. Done, meaning all parts inside and out have reached at least 165 degrees, killing all the bacteria that could be in there. But next, as Chief Stooge Moe said to Curly on Thanksgiving, Stuff that turkey. However, most chefs and food safety experts don't recommend stuffing the turkey because first, you have to overcook the turkey to make sure the stuffing is cooked. Cooked to the bacteria-killing temperature. Marianne says despite her advice, though, some callers to the hotline still insist on stuffing their turkey. And so we're here to make sure that they do it the safest way possible, and that means taking the temperature of the stuffing to make sure it's reached a safe temperature, which is 165. Which may result in overcooking your turkey. So, Curly, are you going to use a food thermometer? Certainly. All right. So you've cooked the turkey correctly, killing all the bacteria that may have been in that bird, but you can't relax yet. Get that turkey into the refrigerator 
within two hours of coming out of the oven. Get it in there. Marianne Gravity says after about two hours, that turkey's cooling down to room temperature, at which bacteria multiply rapidly. But you say, wait a minute, I cooked it to 165. What is the problem? Bacteria are everywhere. They're on our hands, they're on our breath, they're in the air. So it's quite possible that even though you cooked it to a safe temperature, there could be bacteria on it now just from sitting out and being handled. Slice up the meat, put it in containers, and into the fridge. More questions? Certainly. All right, go online to askkaren.gov, Ask Karen, or call the Meat and Poultry Hotline, 1-888-MP-HOTLINE, 888-MP-HOTLINE. Experts will be live online for you, even Thanksgiving Day from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. That bowl of mixed nuts that you have out for your guests for Thanksgiving is a really good idea. Eating nuts on a regular basis reduces the risk of heart disease. That according to a study published this week by the American College of Cardiology. The study found that people who ate five or more servings of nuts per week had a 14% lower risk of cardiovascular disease as well as a 20% lower risk of coronary heart disease. That compares to people who didn't eat nuts at all. The research tracked consumption of walnuts, tree nuts, and peanuts. One of the more popular side dishes of the Thanksgiving Day dinner is the sweet potato. But in recent years, that vegetable has become more than just a Thanksgiving time dish. I'm not sure why it's taken so long for the sweet potato to become so popular. That's according to Jennifer Fishburne of University of Illinois Extension. She's a big fan of the nutritional content of sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes have no fat. They are low in sodium. They are high in fiber. They're cholesterol-free. They contain lots of minerals and vitamins, including vitamin A, vitamin C, beta carotene. They're best if you can cook them with the skin on. That's when you're going to have the most nutrition. But they just are an overall healthy vegetable crop that we can combine in many ways. She says both a recent expansion of marketing efforts and in products has grown the interest in sweet potatoes among consumers. The sweet potato fries, definitely, we see those at a lot of the state fairs. That really opens the eyes for folks to realize that the sweet potato is used in other ways than just at Thanksgiving dinner with a little brown sugar and marshmallows and butter sprinkled on top, that it can be used in many other ways from casseroles to baked to soups and chili. There's even sweet potato ice cream, pancakes and you're starting to see the pancakes actually on menus of restaurants. Of course, consumers can enjoy sweet potatoes at home as well. First things first, when going to the store to purchase fresh sweet potato or growing them in the backyard garden, keep in mind that sweet potatoes and yams, both similar and popular Thanksgiving dinner side dishes, are really not one and the same. Sweet potato is actually a root. It's an expanded root and a yam is a tuber. But the biggest difference that we know is that they are actually two separate vegetables from two separate families. So they're not even related. The yam actually grows in the tropics. You may find it occasionally in southern tips of the United States, people are trying to grow it, but it is grown in the tropics, whereas sweet potatoes grow quite nicely throughout most of the United States, particularly the southern states. Now, Jennifer Fishburne, what should consumers look for when it comes to a fresh sweet potato at their local store or from the garden? What they're going to look for is a firm, smooth-skinned potato that's going to be free of any soft spots, avoiding with any bruises or decay spots. They're not going to keep as long with any soft spots, bruising, or decay. 
She says while orange is the most familiar color of sweet potato, various cultivars can range in color from white to reddish orange. Also, most folks wouldn't realize this, but those potatoes have been cured for several weeks before they make it to the market, and they have to be cured in order to be properly stored. Storage at home must occur in an area with temperatures ranging between 55 to 59 degrees Fahrenheit, free of moisture. Fishburn says with proper storage, though, a damage-free sweet potato can last up to six months. I'm Rod Payne reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. That traditional turkey time is traveling towards us closer every day, much like the annual Thanksgiving Day parades. The centerpiece of today's festivities, the Tom Turkey Float. And no matter if the bird in your freezer is one you brought home from the store or from a hunting trip, proper and safe thawing is needed to assure that turkey will be the centerpiece of your Thanksgiving dinner. University of Georgia Extension's Judy Harrison says freezer storage of a turkey, whether wild or store-bought, is the same, zero degrees Fahrenheit or below until it is ready for thawing. Just as with other frozen foods, there are three methods of thawing that we recommend. Method number one, which Harrison says is perhaps the easiest, is moving the turkey from the freezer to the refrigerator. Let it thaw at cold temperatures in the refrigerator. Take into account that 24 hours of thawing time is required for every five pounds of bird. Once thawed, the turkey should be kept in the fridge for only a day or two before cooking it. Now, if you lack refrigerator space or are pressed for time to cook the turkey, the second option is to thaw it in cold water, making sure that you change the water every 30 minutes so that you don't allow time for bacteria to multiply in that water. If you're thawing in cold water, it's about 30 minutes per pound that the bird weighs. And then there is the option of thawing out your Thanksgiving turkey via your microwave. Harrison says the key to successful thawing with that method is reading the instruction manual of your particular microwave oven to know how long to defrost your bird per pound and what container should be used for the turkey. But go ahead as soon as it's thawed in that microwave oven and cook it either in the microwave or by some other cooking method, not refreezing it or refrigerating it after it's been thawed in the microwave. She has, no matter what, never thawed turkey on the counter, as leaving it at room temperature encourages harmful bacteria to grow. Another food safety tip related to turkey, if you are preparing a pre-stuffed bird. When you have that stuffing packed into the cavity of a bird, it's easy for harmful bacteria to multiply in that stuffing to high numbers. So it's best not to buy a fresh pre-stuffed turkey. Harrison says you can buy pre-stuffed turkeys only if they're frozen and if its packaging contains USDA or state inspection marks for processing under controlled conditions. Those turkeys must be cooked frozen, not thawed. In addition, we don't really recommend that people stuff a turkey. We recommend that you cook your stuffing separately in a casserole dish because it is a little bit more difficult to cook a stuffed turkey, making sure that the stuffing reaches 165 degrees Fahrenheit in the interior portion of the stuffing as well as in the bird itself. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. California's avocado growers have more international competition for shelf space in United States supermarkets. This time, it's from Colombia. The inaugural shipment of Colombian's Haas avocados left Cartagena November 2nd, bound for the United States two months after the U.S. Department of Agriculture opened access for Colombia as a source of the fruit. 
That shipment contained about 20,000 pounds and is arriving at the port of Long Beach. Another Colombian avocado producer has shipped 18 metric tons to Florida. The shipments mark the culmination of years of work by Colombia to gain access to the lucrative United States market. In many horror movies, especially in the Scream series, whenever the phone rings, you know something weird's gonna happen. Hello? What's your favorite scary movie? Uh-oh. Now, at the Agriculture Department's Meat and Poultry Hotline, the number which we'll give you in a minute, the folks there take calls and answer questions about food safety and such, and especially at this time of year, they get some kind of weird calls from people with really strange turkey day problems. Yes, we hear it all. <laughs> That's Marianne Gravely. She runs the hotline and she will tell all. On this edition of Agriculture USA, I'm Gary Crawford. A woman calls the hotline and says she was flying to a distant city, bought this turkey to take on the plane to a Thanksgiving gathering. So she put it in her roller bag with a cold source and took it on the airplane. Yeah, much to the puzzlement, I'm sure, of the TSA people at security. Well, the plane takes off, but it's late. She misses her connecting flight. So she had to spend the night in a hotel. So she put the turkey in a bathtub and covered it with ice until the next day when she got back on her trip. Uh, by that time, the cold source in her luggage had become a room temperature source, but she valiantly, doggedly hauls the turkey to her destination, but wisely calls Marianne at the hotline asking, is this thing going to be safe to eat? And the answer, no way. There was too much time where it wasn't kept cold. It was just too long in the danger zone. The temperature zone in which bacteria can multiply. So that turkey condemned. Yes. Next, a couple of water turkey stories. First, and don't try this at home. A young man had put his turkey in the washing machine to thaw. He had filled it with water. But then one of his roommates tossed a load of laundry in with the turkey. And so all the soap and the clothes and the turkey all went through the wash cycle. But when the guy discovered this, he calls the hotline asking, uh, Yeah, can I go ahead and uh, serve this uh, turkey for Thanksgiving? Yeah, that was a turkey that we had to condemn. That just wasn't safe. But it was probably filled with holiday cheer. Get it? Uh, cheer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, next, a sad story. Here comes a wild turkey heading for a couple's home. Swimming pool. And turkeys don't swim well. The couple finds the victim the next morning, and as they say, who are you going to call? The hotline. The couple argued over whether they could go ahead and use this turkey for their Thanksgiving dinner. It wasn't a good idea. Uh, for more reasons than we've got time for. And in fact, roadkill as a general rule isn't safe. Even pool kill. So, another turkey condemned. Ah, but wait, there's more. We had one couple that were thawing their turkey on the front porch. They went outside to check on it and they saw a raccoon trying to make off with it. A rocky raccoon. And the raccoon had actually, you know, cut through the plastic and tried to eat it. The husband thought that maybe they could just cut that part away, but you know, with a wild animal, it's really not safe. So we had to condemn that turkey. Uh, and condemn the idea of thawing a turkey outside where temperatures could easily be in the range where bacteria could grow and multiply. Of course, uh, that's one kind of call the hotline folks get all the time. Two people disagreeing on something, so they call the hotline folks to settle it. It's time to play Family Feud! This was a Family Feud-type call. And yet another porch is involved. They had received a smoked turkey as a gift the year before. 
the turkey had been left on the porch for two weeks. Then it was put in the freezer. So this is now a year later, and the husband and wife are arguing over whether the turkey was safe to use. They thought because it was smoked that it was safe. And Gravity says no way it's safe. Uh, doesn't matter if it's cooked with smoke or just has some smoke flavor added. Neither one of those makes the product shelf-stable. So this turkey had not been safe for a year and two weeks. But the hotline saved that family from what happened to this next family every year. One of my favorite calls was from a woman who said that the whole family got together and their grandmother always cooked the turkey in a 250-degree oven overnight. And she said every year that weekend, we all got the flu. Not the respiratory kind either. And she said now we know that every year we were all getting food poisoning. But they called it back then the Thanksgiving flu. So if you have questions or an argument to settle concerning meat and poultry, Thanksgiving turkey, whatever, you can call the hotline. And if you call weekdays, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time, or even Thanksgiving Day from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern, you can talk to a live expert. Recorded answers available all other times. And the number to call, 1-888-MP-HOTLINE, 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. Or go online 24-7 to askkaron.gov. Of askkaren.gov. And this has been Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Well, as you know, I hang out at a lot of farmers markets, talk to a lot of farmers. The people who work at farmers markets get the same questions from consumers over and over again. I've compiled a list of, of those questions. And who better to help the farm market employees better communicate what farming is really like than the author of the book Food Truths from Farm to Table. The author is Michelle Payne. She speaks from the intersection of farm and food to bring clarity and common sense to food shoppers everywhere. Has a wonderful website, too. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. And Michelle, glad to have you on the program. And as you know, there's a lot of confusion in the world of consumers, and especially when they go one-on-one -on -one with the farmers who are growing the food. There really is, but farmers can make such a difference in helping people overcome the guilt that they have around some of the perceived issues in food. And, of course, that number one issue that the people at farmers markets tell me they get over and over again, the question is, do your products contain GMOs? Yes, that is an extraordinarily sensitive issue. And one of the ways that I suggest that we talk about GMOs from the agriculture side is to help people understand that all food actually does have genes in it. One study out of Oklahoma State has shown that 75% of consumers uh, think that their food should be labeled if it has DNA in it, uh, which we all know is perhaps a little humorous. But the way that I came up to answering the question and, and trying to decrease the emotionalism around GMOs is my food truth number 10, genes are the coolest ingredient on your plate and helping people understand what genetics actually do in food um, and trying to base it off of that. The whole concept of GMOs is also a, a little funny to me because on the garden shows that I host, we talk about genetically modified organisms and basically most of your hybrid varieties that are out there are GMOs. And what people I think are afraid of is genetically engineered food, not genetically modified organisms, since that goes back to the time of Luther Burbank. Well, and I think hybridization is an interesting discussion, but at the baseline, again, we have to have people understand science and 
I really encourage farmers to back away from how emotional it is because it's impossible if somebody does happen to use biotechnology as a tool on their farm for them to understand the consumer perspective. But the point is, and, and I write about over and over in Food Truths from Farm to Table, is that these people are selecting food for their family. They're trying to keep their family safe. They're trying to make the best nutritional choices for their family, and we have to respect that. So I often will start the uh, discussion around GMOs with talking about diabetes and insulin um, because that's something that most people can relate to and insulin is definitely a GMO product today and it has unquestionably provided quality of life um, for a number of diabetics. Another question that the farmers at farmers markets get a lot of is the question, are your products natural? And the word natural is is kind of murky in, in, in legalese. Yeah, it's really interesting because natural is something that is finally started being reviewed by USDA and FDA um, as far as a claim, because what food isn't natural, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the reality is, as food grows, we produce food, whether it's through the soil or through animals. So food is natural. The claim can be made that, that Cheetos are natural if you want. But the point is, is that the marketing really has gotten out of hand around food. And you see it every day at farmers markets, I'm sure. Um, The reality is that the media is not the best source of information about food. And the fact that marketing on labels or marketing on farmers market stands is confusing consumers. So natural is one of those things that's a little difficult, I think, to talk about. But just helping people see some of the marketing that's out there brings light to that. Another question that the farmer's market people get from uh, consumers is, are your products gluten-free? A lot of interest in gluten these days. There is. And, you know, I interviewed 55-plus farmers, scientists, dietitians, veterinarians, and one of them was a wheat farmer uh, from Idaho. And it was fascinating talking to him about wheat breeding. Did you know that there is, first off, there's no GMO wheat commercially available in the United States or Canada? And secondly, um, it has been proven that protein in wheat, which gluten is the protein in wheat that obviously causes bread to rise and, and so forth or hold, holds it formed. But the protein in wheat has not changed. Um, when you look at it over the decades, it has not changed. They've done numerous studies on it. So I cited some really interesting studies in the book about why some people have gluten sensitivity and the fact that there is a very small percentage of the population that is actually celiac. Uh, that truly is allergic to gluten. So sometimes that gets back to some of the marketing. As a result, a lot of people are turning more and more to organic foods, and there are certainly a lot more organic food stands that populate farmers' markets. But the question those organic growers get is, why is your food so much more expensive? Exactly. And I I think that points to a couple of of different food truths in the book. Organic farming is about production methods, not nutritional value, is food truth number five. And I am all for people who farm organically. If that's the choice of how they want to manage their business for their family, more power to them. But likewise, I also advocate for conventional farming. So I, I think the point is, is that we have to help people understand when they make choices, At the farmer's market, at the grocery store, there are consequences. And one of those consequences is sustainability, which brings to food truth number 12, sustainability is complex and essential to family business. So depending on the product um, that's being grown organically, 
there are some production mitigation that happens when it's organic. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And meaning that we can't grow as much on as small a bottle of land that may require more water, so forth and so on. So I think we need to be really careful in agriculture not to not be divisive on this issue, but also to tell the entire story. Well, you just used another buzzword that a lot of farmers market employees get, and they're confused about it, as well as the consumers, and that is, is your farm sustainable? Who knows what sustainability really is? Well, and that's a great opportunity for farmers to look at the consumer and say, well, can you tell me what you mean by sustainable? And most of the times you're going to hear about water, particularly out in California and air and so forth. And I think if you lead with a question and you listen to what they have to say and you understand what their hot buttons are, then you can connect to them as a human, not as a farmer. We all know that farming today has to be sustainable excuse me, has to be sustainable, just as ranching does, or we wouldn't be in business. But it's helping bring consumers along so that we're on the same page as far as what sustainability is. For some, it's wildlife and helping them understand that 75% of the wildlife habitat in this country is found on farmland. For others, it's the air and the water discussion. And you have um, ample opportunity in California and the Western states to talk about what you have done as far as preserving water and some of the really amazing technology that's happening in irrigation. So again, I would just stop back up and ask a question about what they mean by sustainability and then let that drive the conversation. From those vendors at farmers markets who are in the poultry business, one question they get a lot is, are your eggs produced by cage-free hens? (laughs) Yes, that is hugely popular. And that's actually one I talk about um, a fair amount because backyard chickens are obviously very popular. And I explain thoroughly in the meat section of the book about animal welfare and the fact that it is an hourly concern on farms and ranches. And specifically, I cite studies that show the advantages of the different systems. And there is no clear-cut answer as to what is best. So I think it's, again, you have to come back to what your standards are in the grocery store or at the farmer's market. My standards are such that I prefer my eggs to be produced in a very technological system where manure is not getting on the eggs and where there's no chance that the the chickens are cannibalizing each other because that's what they do. It's sometimes helping people understand animal behavior and what true animal welfare is. Because if you've not been around a farm animal before, you don't know that chickens are carnivores and scavengers. You don't know that pigs will kill each other. And so it's helping people understand the truth of what happens on the farm in a transparent way. And one issue that commercial growers are very aware of, and now that backyard chicken raisers are finding out, is about avian flu. And here on the Pacific Flyway, that is a common threat. And the fact that backyard chicken uh, growers are being urged to keep their chickens inside a uh, some sort of enclosure to keep any sort of wild birds from accidentally infecting them. And that's true yeah, in commercial ag. It absolutely is. I live in Indiana where there's a tremendous amount of poultry and egg production, and it has been a huge issue here as well as in other states that I've traveled to. But one of the things that I think we need to do a better job of in agriculture is telling the story of commercial operations are, in fact, protecting their hens um, in probably a, a more advanced way. I don't want to say better, but a more advanced way than other operations, because I've actually heard in some FFA contests, I had FFA members tell me that avian influenza was caused by um, CAFOs and was a little disappointed to hear that. 
CAFOS, by the way, is an acronym meaning Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations. And I think that's not a common perception, or that's not a common misperception. A lot of people probably do really believe that the larger the operation, the more disease there is, and so forth. So we need to do some good discussions with people to correct that thinking. And the biggest question I get from farm stand operators and those at farmers markets is, what do I say to people when they say, why don't you have blueberries or whatever now? That most consumers do not understand the seasonality of production here in California uh, and everywhere for that matter. But in a supermarket, they can find everything year round. Yes, it's amazing how people don't understand the science of growing food and the seasonality. And I think it's interesting because one of the books that I cited in my book was Locavorous Dilemma. And in the produce section of the book, I actually talked about food truth number eight, local is not always better for the environment. And so while I support farm stands, you know, the reality is it's going to cost more for our farm stand in Indiana to have tomatoes in January um, and raise those in a greenhouse than if we were to ship them in, say, from Florida. And, and so helping people understand, again, they have to know what their their standards are when they go to the farm market, when they go to the farmer's stand, when they go to the grocery store, know what your ethical standards are, your environmental standards, your social standards, and so forth, and measure all claims against those. And as far as farmers, you know, I think it's just an opportunity to talk about well, blueberries don't grow at this time of the year, and that's why we don't have them. What you're buying from the store is, in fact, from another country. If they're fine with that, that's okay. Michelle Payne is the author of the book, Food Truths from Farm to Table. Tell us a little bit about your website. Uh, my website is at causematters.com. I uh, carry a variety of resources there from dietitian blogs to agricultural advocate blogs to farm and ranch blogs. I have any number from California on there, um, as well as information about the book, which happens to be on sale right now for Thanksgiving for the first time ever. So come over and see us at causematters.com, or you're welcome to follow me on any of the social media channels, which is at Speaker. so M-P-A-Y-N and then speaker. I'd love to hear from you. I always enjoy chatting with people that hear me on different shows. So I thank you for having me. Food Truths from Farm to Table is the name of the book. The author, Michelle Payne. Michelle, thank you for your time today. Have a great Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.